0: Lord, thank you that we can be here tonight and just worship you with, with kind of freedom. Uh, it's just really incredible. And I pray that something I will say will have your love sprinkled over it and will touch each and every one of us here. Amen. 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 So it really is honestly such a privilege uh, to be speaking to you tonight in this Emmaus Road series, which, if you didn't hear Simon's last week, That's a lovely sound that I can hear. Uh, If you didn't hear it last week, genuinely do go back and listen to it because he does an amazing uh, job of just giving us a launch pad for this whole series. And I'm not just saying that because he's the one who decides whether I get to do this again or not. It it actually really is good. Um, But anyway, before I start, I just want to give you a quick overview of the Heather family. So my name is Nathan Heather. So the Heather family, I've got four brothers. And, as you can imagine, that might mean that my family is quite competitive. We are, we're quite alpha male in, in lots of ways. We're all really nice, but it is quite a masculine environment. And one of the traits of the head of family is that when we go out for dinner or we go out for a meal, when we're finished, we pay and we leave immediately. There is literally no hanging about. I've since come to realize that's not quite the normal way of doing things. Normally, when you go out for a meal and you finish your dinner, you might sit and chill out, you might enjoy some more conversation, you might go to the toilet, and then you settle the bill, and you all leave as you all came. Well, anyway, my brother, my older brother, he's called Josh, and he got married to a lady called Emma. And before they got married, Emma came on holiday with us to Centre Parks. It was the first time she'd come away with the Heather family, and we'd gone out for dinner, Uh, Actually, we went out for lunch. Sorry, it wasn't dead. We went out for lunch. And we'd all finished dinner, or lunch, whatever it was. We'd finished our meal. And she just decided, as anyone would, I need to go to the toilet. So she left, went to the toilet, thinking, as I imagine all of you would be, there's no way they're going to leave me. How could they possibly leave me? The bill's not here. None of that can possibly happen. Anyway, the rest of us Heathers were done, and so we went, Yep, let's pay, go on, Dad, you get it, (laughs) because he's the one who pays normally. Uh, But we, we paid, we left to go and play short tennis in the Jardin des Sports. But anyway, Emma came out of the toilet, went back to the table, and saw a brand new family there. And must have been thinking, what has happened to the Heather clan? There's seven of us, where have they all gone? Fortunately, she had her phone, so she just rang my brother and said, you know, why have you left me? Uh, and we just said, no, we haven't left you. We've just gone over, the, over the, the, the building and we're just playing some short tennis. But this story shows, I think, how often and how easily we can feel abandoned or forsaken. And it helps lead into the forsaken psalmist and why Jesus likely would have included this in his Old Testament overview. And I'm just going to have to do a small apology that I am really only going to be talking about Psalm 22 here. There was, honestly, when I saw that brief, there was so many psalms, I thought I can't possibly talk about all of that in 15 minutes. So I picked Psalm 22 because I think that's the one that really sums up this forsakenness. So, first, a good question would be, how do we know Jesus would have included the forsaken psalmist, particularly that Psalm 22, in the overview he gave to these disciples on the Emmaus Road. And the answer is that we can't know for definite that he did. Luke simply writes, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Therefore, we can't know with absolute certainty that the forsaken psalmist would have been mentioned. Nevertheless, what I can see is Jesus walking with Cleopas and the unnamed disciple both starting possibly to recognize who they were walking with after his explanation of Exodus and the Passover. And I can picture Jesus saying, do you both not remember the cry that Jesus uttered before his soul left his body? And I picture both disciples looking at one another like, this is all too painful. Jesus has literally only just died. His body's been taken. How can this man ask us, what did he cry? What is he on about? To which I picture Jesus looking at these disciples and then he replies, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. And immediately, immediately, these disciples would have known this to be a direct reference to Psalm 22 when the great King David began one of his most famous prayers of lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this psalm, this prayer of lament, doesn't have quite the same certain historical context as the Passover and Exodus. There is no scholarly consensus on the exact historical context and why David wrote this prayer of lament. It might have been around the time of the Babylonian destruction of the temple, but we don't know. And to be honest, getting wrapped up in the historical context of this psalm misses the real importance of it. This prayer, I think, is instead the crescendo of King David's earthly pain. It's probably one of the rawest and realest psalms we have, where David articulates the absolute pain of feeling like we are losing our connection with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of a heart that has had its communion with God suspended, a pain unlike any other. And I don't believe that David's crying comes from some bodily pain, from some city losing pain, not even from a familial pain. He cries, God, why have you forsaken me? Because this is the true prayer of a heart that is enveloped with sin. And this feeling was certainly not unique to David. No, I think all believers have felt this pain. It just took the chief lyricist to articulate the pain for all believers. And this is the prayer that Jesus co-ops and then completes when he is on the cross in Matthew 27, 46 and Mark 15, 34. And how marvelous is this? This is just kind of an aside. But Jesus could be in union with humans so emphatically that he could feel the same things that we feel. I mean, that just honestly staggers me. To have a God that's willing to come down from heaven to experience the struggle of the believer... I mean, that's just simply incredible. But why? Why does Jesus co opt Psalm 22 from David? And if we're honest, from the heart, souls, and lips of every believer? Because this is the climax, the crescendo of the whole story of the Old and New Testament. This is the moment of redemption when he who knew no sin became sin so that we may become righteous. On the cross, Jesus took the sin of humanity past, present, and future for all time and for the final time because it was the only way to redeem us, you, me, all of us, all of humanity. It was the crescendo of God's redemptive plan. And yet, the only way that this marvelous story could work, was if Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, took the entire weight of sin upon himself. And that's why he co-ops the prayer of David, the prayer of the one whose sin has engulfed his heart, because for the first time in Jesus's life, he did not know complete unity with the Father. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I must here make a point that is of the utmost importance to us as followers of Jesus. The father did not abandon Jesus on the cross. He didn't abandon David in Psalm 22, but he certainly didn't abandon Jesus on the cross. He did not leave. He did not desert him. So frequently, I hear Christians preach from the pulpit or in private conversation with friends that God turns his face away from his children for some reason or another, and that cannot be further from the truth. There are two reasons I know this. The first one is that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the cross. Therefore, if God was in in Christ, at the cross, there cannot have been complete separation or abandonment, as you can't separate one thing entirely from another if they also remain together. It's logically impossible. So that's the first reason. However, the second reason, and I believe the more compelling reason, is because sin separates us from God, not the other way around. Let me repeat that. Sin separates us from God and not the other way around. Now, don't mistake me here. The Father hates sin. Absolutely, 100% categorically hates it. However, if we follow the train of thought that says because someone is sinful or full of sin as Jesus was on the cross, and therefore the Father cannot bear the sight of them, we must in turn accept that sin is actually more powerful than God. And friends, that is not only a fundamental misunderstanding of omnipotence, it's also an incredibly dangerous belief because we can begin to believe that there is sin too great for God to deal with. And that is categorically, fundamentally, emphatically wrong. Let me demonstrate this to you if I can. So, please can I just have the light dimmed for this? Thank you so much, Richard. So, this light on the stage, I'm just going to switch it on to really emphasize my point. If we picture that that light there is the love of God. This incredibly powerful, you know, maybe you can use your imagination to really emphasize it. You know, this is God's love though. Wowzers, it's blinding me. It's that bright. If I could, Simon, do you mind just helping me grab this this little sheet that I have? I've bought this from home. So now we have this. Thank you so much. So, so, we had the light, the love of God. But then, this black fabric now represents our sin. Can you see the Father's light? You might be able to see the, the top of it. Just imagine I'd actually done it. Perfect. Thank you, Andrew. You can't see anything. You can't see it. It's black. We can't see anything. It's black. Right? Sin Is there? Does this is this piece of black fabric more powerful than the light that is behind it? No, it's not. Right? The light behind it is is powered, it's got voltage, it gives us warmth, which is good when the church has boilers is condemned. But there the light behind it so much more powerful. But the problem is, is that sin gets in the way. And in its closeness to us, it stands in the way of the love of God. And no longer, because of our shame and our anxiety and our worry, we can no longer see the love of the Father. Because the light, but the light has not gone. Instead, sin is the total eclipse of the heart. Right? That's what sin does. And think about the story in Genesis of Adam and Eve. Once they ate the apple and sinned, God came walking, actively searching out the sinners. And who chose to hide, abandon the other? It was Adam and Eve, it wasn't God. God is not afraid of your sin. But how often do we act like this? How often does sin envelop, engulf, and enslave us into belief that God's love, countenance, and smile no longer radiate our lives? Constantly. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani is really the cry of a heart that can't see God because we, in our insecurity, pain and worry, believe sin, in its closeness, is more powerful and more real than the love of God. But that is not the truth. But please, I mean, don't mistake me here. When we sin, we do forsake our true identity as Ortland writes. It is problematic, and and we, of course, feel shame. But we cannot, particularly in those moments, believe that the Father no longer loves us and has forsaken us because that is so far from the reality of God. Our Savior does not forsake us even when we forsake ourselves. And as I was preparing uh, for this, I just felt this challenge from God, which was, would you even recognize what being forsaken would look like? And I was like, wow, that's pretty, that's so intense. Um, but what I think God was challenging me with here was that to recognize the pain of distance means you must know real tangible closeness. And now if we're honest, I would imagine most of us would feel the pangs of distance if our friends moved abroad, if our favorite sports team wasn't playing because it's the offseason, Or, and perhaps most embarrassingly, our phone has run out of battery and we can't check that latest Facebook post or TikTok trend. Yet we don't feel the pain of our choice to be distant from God because we don't walk in step with him. I think this prayer is actually a sign of the psalmist and of Jesus being aware and in tune with their relationship with God and their perception of of it that they feel this. It's a sign of being alive to it, rather than just immersed with life's pointless distractions. The psalmist feels the forsakenness and experiences it and notes it, even if he doesn't stay there. However, and I I might genuinely only be speaking for myself here, but I regularly don't intentionally seek his smile and his countenance like David and Jesus did. When sin eclipses my heart and shame envelops my soul, and I can't see the smile of the Father, I don't even notice it. And how painful is that? That we can know the Father as intimately as God incarnate, yet in our foolishness, we don't even notice that we've chosen absence. We don't even notice that we've chosen absence. But nevertheless, this this sin eclipsing the heart from the power, smile, and love of the Father is what Jesus felt. And certainly for the first time in his life, and it led him to cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lemar sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a cry that is all too real, all too painful, and all too human. But that's the beauty of it. That's what I imagine Jesus was trying to explain to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that he had to take this prayer that all believers had felt he had to suffer a heart that had chosen separation from God because that was the ultimate power that the enemy held to make us choose separation from the Father. Therefore, Jesus had to embrace this pain to render the ultimate power of the enemy null. And he did this through declaring the prayer of lament, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, before he passed away. Now I'm coming to the end, but I read this quote from the theologian Dane C. Autland that says, Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts you have of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool to him in wake of it. This is the real power of the black fabric. It is there and it tells us that God has forsaken us when we sin and makes us forget that Jesus hung on the cross and said, why have you forsaken me to rid us of that black fabric, so that we can run back to the Father when we mess up, not forsaking him by accepting his love, his compassion, I'm hoping this works, his affection, especially when we've sinned, even though we know we don't deserve it, because friends, his heart is more for us than we can ever comprehend. That's the unimaginably beautiful plan of redemption that God orchestrated. That Jesus, and I can picture him with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus explaining this redemption arc through Psalm 22 being co-opted and then fulfilled on the cross through the pain of Jesus choosing to separate his heart from the Father's even if only in part, rendering that pain null because he gave us the ability to run back to the Father when we mess up to choose the Father's forgiveness over the lie that the enemy tells us that God forsakes us when we mess up. And in that explanation, Jesus knew that he fulfilled the suffering and now can enter into his glory knowing the redemptive plan of God had worked. Amen.